Hey, this is Phil Yanov with the Tech After 5 podcast. You got a brand new venture and you've got to raise money for it. Maybe you've even got to raise a million dollars. Want to know how to do that? I did too. So I went and asked a guy who's done it many times over. And he's not just raised a million here and a million there. He's raised 10 million at a time by at by activating and working inside his network. You're going to want to know how to do this for yourself. And so listen up as we talk to John Warner, the Swamp Fox, about how he raises money. We're going to get to that, by the way, in just a minute. But let's do some business first. Hey there, Paranormal here. The following podcast may contain bad words. It probably doesn't, but it might. Don't get me wrong. My dad uses bad words all the time. But you seem like nice people. And my dad tries to use nice words around nice people. If you happen to be a bad person who likes bad words, you might be disappointed in the following podcast. I know I was. Uh, I'm John Warner. Uh, I grew up in Charleston, lived in Greenville for 36 years, and probably best known as a serial entrepreneur. Done a lot of different things. Um, been involved in trying to help build the entrepreneurial ecosystem, Greenville and South Carolina more broadly, for a long time. Mike Switzer, who hosts the South Carolina Business Review, always introduces me as John Swamp Fox Warner and wants to know what's going on down in the swamp. So, so I adopted uh, Swamp Fox as an analogy for South Carolina innovation. So Francis Marion did everything but fight the way Cornwallis was prepared to fight. Um, you know, ambushed him, uh, shot at him, didn't anything other than line up in a continental style and, you know, fight him straight up. Um, so that's what entrepreneurs need to do. You know, if they're taking on market leaders in the world, uh, they got to define the rules because if they don't, they're going to get run over. So Perfect. I'm Phil Yanov, and I'm here with my friend Scott Pfeiffer. Glad to be here. And we're going to talk to John. John, one of the things that, you know, serial entrepreneur, you led with that. It's a thing, of course, I think most people know you for doing one thing after the other. But one of the things you've had to do is you had to raise money at various right. points. I mean, we perpetually perhaps in that spot. We, it seems like we're in that spot more, more than once. But uh, I want to get lessons learned from you. So uh, tell us for a minute, give, give me a little bit of overview in the beginning of your story about, you know, your first fundraising adventure, capital raising adventure. Uh, well, I went to Clemson, went to graduate business school at University of Georgia, came to Greenville to work for what today is known as KPMG. Um, had a lot of entrepreneurial clients, Ryan's Family Steakhouses, which at the time was the best performing stock on the NASDAQ, Baby Superstores, which ultimately got acquired by Toys R Us, uh, Tailman, which was a long-distance phone company that's been a part of a long string of successes. The legacy in Greenville today is Green Cloud Technologies. Um, so during the 80s, worked with a lot of really successful entrepreneurs, and it got to be known for that. People would bring me a business plan, and I got to where I could – um, tell if I if I gave a, a business plan to one person, you know, who else in town would see it. So there was a kind of informal networks of people that invested together. So I left KPMG in 1990, uh, went to work for a client for about a year and a half. That was pretty much of a disaster. Um, so I had to reinvent myself um, and started what today you would call an angel fund. Never heard that word before. Didn't realize anybody else in the country had ever done anything like this. Uh, the managing partner of uh, KPMG had left, go to work for Barton Tuck, started a company called Golf South to build golf courses in the southeast. And his name was Daryl Hunter. Uh, he came to me and said, um, 
you know, I don't, I don't know if you'd like this, but I'd like to know if I could be chairman of your firm. And I said, let me get this right. The managing partner of the KPMG office wants to be the chairman of my firm. Daryl, I think that'll be okay. <laughs> so maybe that's lesson number one, right? I mean, I had a relationship with this fella. Um, I had kind of investigated this idea. I was meeting with people on a monthly basis. Daryl was one of the people that I reached back out to and kind of told him what was going on. And he got intrigued. But, you know, working... Um, at KPMG and being introduced to kind of the business elite in Greenville, I think was the foundation on which we started what became Capital Insights, which is what the Angel Fund was called. So, you know, Daryl was the gravitas. He was the credibility. You know, he was the person that had been chairman of the chamber and, and uh, you know, the managing partner of KPMG. And, and I was the tenacity. I was early 30s and, you know, you know if there's a wall there, we're going to bore through the wall kind of thing. Um, so what the what bit of that? I mean, I got you because it sounded like it was just completely fluid there. But there's a transition point at some bit, and I wanted to kind of get to that. But you said the thing that led you to this was the fact that you were reviewing business plans already, and that was part of KPMG. Yeah, I mean, when I was at KPMG, people would come to me, and and they knew that I was involved in the entrepreneurial community, and they would bring me business plans. I was looking to raise money. And, you know, I would take them to some of the clients I was working on. As I said, I, I got to where I could identify who else in town might see the plan based on who I gave it to first. And these were people that were, um, they'd worked in big companies before. Maybe the company had been sold and they'd made a you know, good bit of money, had some money in their pocket. But they, were, they still knew each other. You know, their, their families knew each other. They still went to lunch together. And, and uh, so uh, when we started Capital Insights, the basic idea was, we tried to have a general partner of about 15 people, and each one of these people was tapped into a different one of these informal networks in Greenville. Um, so that was the basic business plan. And what I had done is what I've done many times since then is I wrote this down on a piece of paper, and I went out and I started talking to people. You know, here's my idea. What do you think? And I would get feedback from different people in town. And so it kind of iterated uh, to what we ended up doing. And, and Daryl was kind enough to go to lunch with me every month. And so he kind of heard, you know, the evolving story of how this was going. And that's why he got intrigued, was started to be compelling and started to make some sense. And so um, uh, we ended up um, in 1992 uh, starting what became Capital Insights. Right. And so just I want to bring a couple people along. Folks who don't maybe understand is that KPMG is an accounting firm. That was a logical thing to do. Right. I mean, if you were going to go start something and had some money in your pocket, you took it to your accountant and said, am I crazy or not? Not only an accounting firm, but an international accounting firm. So there were there were eight very large international accounting firms at the time. So, you know, if, if um, you were a large corporation in, in Greenville, you were working with one of the big eight accounting firms. And it was, um, and well, I went to work for KPMG. Excuse me, I went to work for Pete Morick Mitchell, which subsequently right. became KPMG. You know, there was Ernst & Winnie, which ultimately became um, Ernst & Young, which is what it is today. Uh, there was uh, Price Waterhouse, which today is Price Waterhouse Coopers. So um, there's four of them today, but there were eight at the time. And so major organizations all had their books audited and they had the tax returns done by these international accounting firms. So when you went to work for one of those organizations in Greenville in 1982, which I did, you got introduced to kind of a who's who in town, you know, credited individual investors who have money. And so that's a securities term. It basically means you have a net worth of a million bucks, and and that's who you raise money for. It's a little bit like um, why did Willie Horton rob banks? 
Because that's where the money's at. Right. You know, why do you raise money from accredited investors? Because that's who has it. And so, um, and, and I did that consciously. I mean, I, I went to work for Pete Mark, ultimately KPMG, knowing that it would kind of plug me into a business community, you know, at a pretty high level. And sure enough, I mean, that did. Yeah. So, John, when you started raising this money, you were raising money to go into a fund that was going to do something. You didn't have an already existing business that had cash flow and positive results. No, we. Um, what we did was uh, we went to 15 people in town, kind of a who's who of folks, and we said, you know, we want to create an entity that's going to invest in high-growth entrepreneurial companies. But no, you're exactly right. We did not have a company in mind, and we sold our concept that, each one of the people in the general partner would know 15 people, for example, and they bought it, you know, and as one person did it, then it made more compelling to the next person, more compelling to the next person. So by the time we got finished, they all kind of convinced each other of this. And so the first company we raised money for was a company called Telecommunications Devices. Uh, it was a uh, company that could send a text message through an alphanumeric pager. Now, Probably nobody listening to this, Phil, even knows what an alphanumeric no pager is. Nobody, no, nobody remembers a pager, much less an alphanumeric pager. But you could send an 80-character message um, through that. And so if you had a, a um, alarm that went off or you had a refrigerator that became too hot or you know a chiller in a plant, you know, it could detect that and, and send you a message on your pager that says, hey, you need to pay attention. Um, the second thing so, we did, before, but I want to get back to where Scott was in the beginning because mm -hmm. I think that's really important, right? Mm -hmm. You started with the idea, let's go create a fund, but I'm and we're going to invest in entrepreneurial companies, and we're going to do it basically around people everybody knows. I mean, that's a network of networks that you built to begin with. Well, and this was 1992 in Greenville, South Carolina, too. So. You know, in addition to being a, a serial entrepreneur, I mean, I think I'm known for, you know, helping build the, the the entrepreneurial ecosystem here. So I joke sometimes that, you know, I, there's this country singer that says I was country before country was cool. Yeah. I was doing this a long time before it's cool, right? Today in Greenville, you know, we, we have some people saying, well, we're the Silicon Valley of the South. Well, in 1992, they weren't anybody thinking that. Yeah. So we, so we what, were definitely on the leading edge of this curve. I, I got that you could. I got that you had the connections, that you were smart enough to do. Why were you interested in that? Why was John Warner interested in that? You know, I mean, entrepreneurship is just something I've always been. I don't know how to explain it. I mean, it's almost, uh, you know, a gene you have, I think, that you just like the creativity. You like the, you know, the new frontier of what you're doing. Um, at KPMG, most people wanted to work with BMW and Michelin and the big global corporations, and I always enjoyed working more with the entrepreneurial ones. Um, you know, I liked uh, going to lunch with the CEO and sitting down and saying, what are you trying to do? And uh, he would, you know, tell you what all of his problems were. You go back to the office, you write a letter and say, I can do this and this and this and this. And, you know, the key to that was there was more things on this list than he was willing to pay for. So the only question was, you know, where are you going to draw the line and what you're going to do this quarter? And that's a kind of an entrepreneurial approach to accounting, isn't it? You know that that I'm Here trying. Here the problems we can solve. Right. Only you know, afford little, to solve some of them. A little bit of customer discovery there, right? right. You mean, um, you know, when when you squeal, we've charged you enough. Right. And um, and and so this kind of customer discovery process with what became Capital Insights was the same way, where we 
you know, put something together on a piece of paper. And then what did I do? I went out and talked to a bunch of people. I mean, it took about nine months before of talking to a whole lot of folks that, um, you know, before we kind of settled on the concept we had. And, you know, fast forward today, I'm running a company and it's almost the same thing. I mean, get out of the office, go sit out in front of customers and, you know, ask them what they think. That customer discovery process is really critical to this whole entrepreneurial journey. And I think it's something that's pretty grossly underestimated, really, how important it is to go out and listen and hear what people really say about what their problems are and what they're willing to you know, pay to solve. Yeah. You, you've been on both sides of this, right? So, I mean, it, and I kind of want to get your insight on both, what I, what I think of both sides. That is, first off, you pull together a fund. You are raising money. Mm-hmm. What, does, what does that pitch sound like? What do you say? Well, I mean, in Greenville in 1992, 93, 94, it was a lot about the credibility of the other people involved, right? We, we were investing in deals and, you know, here are these people in town that have done this. And so you ought to take a look at it, too. So people were investing in people they knew. Um, and, and so you talk about kind of, you know, Uber networking. I mean, I guess that's what it was. Um, you know, there, there were people in town that were very prominent business people and I'd gone and sat down in their living room and Daryl and I had put together a list of, you know, a couple of thousand people that we thought were accredited investors, which is basically people that have a net worth of a million bucks. That's a securities um, definition. And I would go sit down in the in the living room of, of the folks that were working with us, the 15 people, and I would say, okay, can you, you know, give them a highlighter. Can you tell me who you know? Right. And they literally would highlight who they knew. And we built that into a database. I had a PC at the time. And so I would call on you. Well, the first thing I know is who you know. Right. And maybe a little name drop there as we're talking. Because my assumption, I'm a 30 something years old. My, you know, and, and most of these people that are working with me are, you know, a generation older than me. So if I went and called on one of their peers, my operating assumption was by, before I got in the car, they had already picked up the phone and called whoever they knew. Right. So I wanted to make sure I knew who they knew. And then we did a whole series of events that we called them entrepreneurship, you know, 95, 96, 97. Uh, we had people like Charlie Hauser come and, and talk about how he'd started Tellman and Corporate Telemanagement Group. And and so we sent these invitations out. And kind of the idea there was that people who invest in these kinds of things themselves are entrepreneurial. So if you kind of put an entrepreneurial content out there and they show up, guess what? They, they tend to be leaning into this, and they, and they might tend to do this. So we had a big a marketing brochure that we, we did about um, 1995, and uh, it was big, oversized brochure. So one thing you could not do is file it in a file cabinet. You had to do something with it, right? You had to react to it. You had to put it on the table in your lobby, but you couldn't file it away because it was too big. And the first half of it was... Um, uh, Bill Orders, who was a very successful entrepreneur in Greenville. Everybody knew him, you know, blue chip Greenville. And the first half of this little brochure was about Bill. And the second half was about a, about a guy named Errol Carolu, who ran a company called Specialty Electronics, which was one of the first companies we invested in. They made electronic connectors, had built a plant in Singapore, were servicing the hard drive industry. And kind of the theme of this book was Bill was Errol 20 years ago. Right. Right. He had grown up. He'd made a net worth. And now, you know, what we need Bill to do is invest back into Errol. So this whole idea of of 
kind of tapping in, figuring out how to tap into people that had this entrepreneurial gene was really the core of what we did. So, go ahead. You know, John, one thing I'm interested in is you often hear from entrepreneurs who want to raise money that it's too confusing. There are too many different structures. They don't know whether to do preferred stock or convertible debt. They don't know how to price it. Can you talk a little bit about that? How do you decide on the structure and the pricing for a deal? Yeah, I mean, the, the pricing is what people are willing to pay for it, right? <laughs> I mean, so investors will help you understand. <laughs> if too many people say no, it's too high. <laughs> it's too expensive. That's exactly right. Um, so, you know, I, I almost think people get too caught up in that, really. Um, you know, my rule of thumb is, is simpler is better. I mean, starting a company is complicated enough. You know, and if you have a really complicated capital structure, you know, you've just added to the you know, the difficulty, the degree of difficulty, that in a really way it's unnecessary. So, you know, there's three things that can happen when you have an entrepreneurial company that people are investing in. Um, the first thing that can happen is we can uh, fail. And when you fail, you know what? It really don't make any difference how you structured it, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody loses their money. In my situations, everybody's pissed off at John. They're not going to do business with John in the future. Okay, you need to live with that. You know, on the upside, if we hit the grand slam home run, you know what? It also don't make a whole lot of difference, right? Everybody made a gazillion dollars. Everybody's happy. John's the smartest person in Greenville. You know, there you go, right? What have you done for me lately? Um, where it probably makes the most difference is in the middle. You know, we're kind of a middling success. You know, we didn't fail, but we didn't hit the big home run. And now who gets their money back first? You know, what the guaranteed return was. All of those kind of preferences and things, they make a big difference. Um, and I've had both. Well, I've had all three, actually. I've had some that were just craters. And I've had some that were pretty good home runs. Um, but, you know, the, the, the place where you're most thankful that you thought through what you were doing was kind of that place in the middle where instead of making, you know, a, a, a small return, maybe you doubled your money because of the way it was structured. I think that's great. Um in doing all that, is there a lot of work uh, that attorneys and accountants need to do to help an entrepreneur get ready to raise this money? Well, I, you know, I think the key there is finding professionals that have done this before, right, who understand how this is done. Uh, you know, I, I've got an attorney uh, that I've worked with for a number of years who, in addition to being a securities attorney, is also really a good business person. You know, and there's times when I get pig-headed about doing something and he'll say, you know, John, you're not listening to me. Just stop. Listen to what I'm trying to tell you. And I respect him enough that, you know, you kind of listen. Um, so, you know, you want somebody that understands what you're trying to accomplish, you know, the risks that are reasonable, the risks that are unreasonable, and kind of can help you think through that because, Raising money, securities law, all of that is a really, really complicated um, area. And even some of the new laws that have tried to make it easier for entrepreneurs to raise money from a legal perspective have made it much more complex, right? It used to be pretty simple. I mean, you only can raise money from accredited investors that you know. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you do crowdfunding to a whole bunch of people who, you know, um, aren't millionaires. And while that sounds very good, uh, there's a whole level of complexity that comes with that that wasn't there before. So having professionals that have been there, done that, you know, know what you're trying to accomplish can help you not only from a 
legal or an accounting perspective, but really from a business perspective, what are you trying to do? Um, I talked to an entrepreneur today who told me his attorney had told him that he ought to look at one of these crowdfunding uh, rules where, you know, in, accredited individual investors can invest up to $5,000. And I said, how much are you trying to raise? He said, well, I'm trying to raise a million bucks. Okay, it's going to take a lot <laughs> a of million people. million divided by 5000 It's going to take a lot of people to raise $5,000 at the time, right? right? So, you know. Yeah, that's a tough one. In that, uh, you know, for me, I would just go, wow, that sounds expensive. Is that expensive? I mean, you got a number of people involved. you got some professionals. I mean, what should I set aside for that if I'm going to go raise a million bucks? Well, the professional fees of raising a million bucks is probably ten to twenty thousand dollars by the time you get all the legal documents done and maybe some of the accounting that you need to get done. So, what's that one to two percent of what yeah. you were raising? You know, if you use any kind of agent, if there's you know some of these crowdfunding platforms, um, anything like that, it's probably five to ten percent at a minimum. So you raise a you know a million bucks, and you're talking about spending a hundred thousand dollars to do that. If you're using any kind of platform to do it, but, but even legal fees, you need to be prepared for ten, twenty thousand bucks. I mean, it's it makes you think we should have all gone to law school instead of doing what we're doing. But yeah, uh, it's it's what you know it's what the market for that kind of thing is. It's, you violate a securities law, and you are personally liable. Right? There's no corporate shield to a securities law. So it's just not one of those things you want to screw up. Right. Um, so, you know, someone, an entrepreneur comes up to you and they're trying to raise a million bucks, let's say, or 10 million for that matter. Um, what advice are you giving them and what are they usually getting wrong before they even get to you? Well, let's take the low end of that. Um, so I have a lot of people call me. They're looking for a million bucks for this or that. And I usually tell them that based on all my experience, what you're looking for is somebody that has an affinity for what you're doing. So in my world, now I told you about specialty electronics that made electronic connectors for hard drives. You know, people that were involved in manufacturing kind of understood that or felt like they understood it, you know, had an affinity for it. The biggest home run that Capital Insights did was Earth Fair. We invested in a hippie in Asheville who had an organic grocery store, and we grew it into a chain of 15 stores and $100 million and sold it to a private equity firm. You know, there it was people who either were already organic um, people, organic food people, or it was or it was grocery people, Some, somebody that had an affinity for the market. So when entrepreneurs come say, I'm trying to raise um, – I had somebody just last week said they were looking to, to invest in an event barn up in northern Greenville County associated with a winery. Well, that sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? I mean, I kind of like I'm, I'm looking forward to going up there and, and enjoying the beverage in the event barn. You know, she needs to find somebody in the restaurant industry, maybe the guy that invested in the winery, somebody in the hospitality industry. You know, somebody kind of knows that space. You know, if she goes and talks to the guy over in Easley that's got the chemical company, he's probably not going to feel like, you know, something he knows much about, has much of an affinity for. So, um, uh, you know, I think it's – it's and I guess the other big thing, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs don't appreciate this, it's probably somebody you either know or in the network of people you know. Because at that stage, people are investing in people they know. Right. And if, they, if they've never heard of you and don't know you, and I mean, the chance that they're going to write a check, 
Not really good. Yeah, so people who are emotionally engaged or intellectually stimulated by the prospect of what you are doing, they're the ones that you're going to start with. So the flip side of the question is, uh, so they're looking in the wrong place if they're not looking for people who are already potentially connected to what they're doing. What other sort of mistakes are you seeing in someone who's trying to raise that million bucks? Well, I don't know about mistakes. I think they underestimate how hard it is. I mean, we raised a million three hundred fifty thousand dollars for a company I started a few years ago called Concepts to Companies, which the company I run today is Successful Diagnostics, and the first part of the seed capital for Successful Diagnostics came from Concepts to Companies. And I, I had a coffee with an entrepreneur, and he said, "Yeah, but you know, you're well known in Greenville, and you have a reputation, and so you can raise that kind of money." And I said, "Here's what you don't understand." I called on 135 people and eight people said yes. That means 127 people said no. And so my experience is most people aren't willing, you know, to go through that to raise what they need to raise. And um, it's, it's hard. I mean, even, even when you've done this for a while and been successful, it's really, really hard to raise this amount of money. Now, in your earlier question, you talked about raising $10 million. Okay, $10 million, you're no longer talking about Greenville. You're probably not talking about South Carolina. You know, you're probably talking about some more type institutional investment somewhere else. You've got to be further down the road. You probably have to have revenue and cash flow. And, you know, you're, you're not raising that just on, you know, hope and a prayer that we're going to be successful. But But you're probably not finding that money here either now. Yeah, you know, I guess the exception to that is if you're building a real estate project or you're starting a community bank, we seem to be able to raise money for those kinds of things around here. You know, have for yeah, a long time. Yeah, real property based. Yeah, that's different. That's different. Yeah, right. but kind of startup technology companies. You know, you you talking about ten million dollars? It's it's not in Greenville. Right. You know, John, I love that insight about how many no's it takes to get to the number of yeses you need just to raise a million dollars. But it seems to me that. The care and feeding of your investors after the investment has got to be almost as important as what you do to get them invested in the first place. Well, and, and there's two real aspects to that. Um, and, and the first is, um, you know, you've raised money from somebody. What you're doing is really difficult. More than likely, it's not going to turn out like the plan you put in front of them. Right. I mean, success is not proving your original idea is right. Success is starting there and iterating to what is right. Um, so, you know, you want upset investors, surprise them. You know, you get a year, two, three years down the road and you've been saying everything's OK, everything's great, everything's wonderful, everything's great. And then all of a sudden, oh, we're going to close the doors and we're going to lay everybody off and you're going to lose all your money. If that's a stark um, reality, uh, you might get sued. So, I mean, I think, I think communication, 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 you know, even if you're not successful, if people felt like you gave it a good go, you know, you were honest and had integrity in how you communicated, um, you're less likely to run into problems with, uh, with investors down the road. Um, Give some specific advice on that. Well, before I do that, but let, let me, let me add a second thought to that. And that is, if you're going to raise another round of capital, you want the people that have invested with you today to be referring you to people they know, right? Well, the best way to do that is to have a great reputation with them, right? To, to be seen as uh, forthright and clear and you know, communicating. I mean, Accessible Diagnostics is iterated several different times now. And, uh, you know, I had a conversation with one of my investors just yesterday and, you know, 
he wished we had made a lot more money than we had to date, but, you know, he felt like we were on the right path and, you know, you know, headed in the right direction. And that's just communication. So get back to what you just asked me. Yeah. So, and you're probably, that'll be, you'll lead right to that, which is give some specific advice. You got another, you know, someone else has been through this. They've raised a million bucks. They're going down on their entrepreneurial journey here with some of that uh, helping them. How, what specifically should they be doing in terms of communication with their investors? After the investment? Yeah, after the investment. And of course, we're talking about beyond what's required, right? Well, I mean, I think the, I think the best rule is, you know, just be open and honest. So, um, you know, one of the things I try to do is help is communicate to people what I'm, what am I worried about? You know, what do I think can go wrong? You know, what are the uh, remedial steps we're taking to try to, you know, try to overcome that? You know, where do we see the op- you know, uh, I think I think another important thing, and this isn't just in communication, but this is just kind of in temperament and attitude, and that is to focus on the bright spots and look for more of that. So you're doing something that's very ambiguous. You know, you're not quite sure what the customer's looking for. Even the customers may not. You know, Henry Ford was famous for saying if I'd asked them what they wanted, they'd have said faster horses. They wouldn't have said they wanted cars, but they could have darn sure told you what was wrong with the horse, right? Ate too much. It was too slow. It pooped too much. It got sick. I mean, they could have hold a whole litany of that. But they couldn't have said the solution to that is a car. And, and so a lot of times entrepreneurs are faced with that, right? You can't show up in the customer's office and say, you know, is this what you're looking for? Because they don't really know. So if you can find those bright spots, I mean, where is it that you actually sold something? Where is it that it actually resonated something? Uh, entrepreneurs will come see me and, and they've gone and called on 100 customers and 95 of them said no. And they're really dejected. And my question is always, well, I don't really care. My question is, which five said yes and why? And how do you make 5, 10? And how do you make 10, 20? And how do you make 20, 40? Because I think that's what I—that's what the best entrepreneurs I know do, and that's why it's important to have this mindset that success is not my original idea is right. Because you know we're dealing with ambiguous situations of, you know, success is us starting there and iterating to what is right. And so, you know, now you're talking about investors. That's a communication process, right? Here's what I've learned. Here's what I think works. Go out and validate that. And the more you can be kind of transparent and honest, I think the more people are willing to rally to your cause. Yeah. So tell us about what you're working on now. Well, um, we are in the process of launching a painless glucose test for diabetic dogs. It's called VetTab. It's a smartphone-based system. You take a um, swab, uh, swab the inside of a dog's cheek. It will turn color based on the amount of glucose in that saliva. You take your smartphone out, take a picture, and it will tell you what the dog's blood glucose is. So rather than having to poke your dog in the lip with a lance and draw a drop of blood, you can swab its saliva and get just as an accurate result. Um, where this all started was we have an academic partner, Delphine Dean, who is an endowed research chair in bioengineering at Clemson, and she was doing research into um, how to have medical devices for low-resource settings in developing countries. In particular, she's done a lot of work in Tanzania, one of our graduate students identified that glucose meters were too expensive, so started working on a low-cost glucose meter. That's about the time I got involved. Um, this graduate student's idea was too complicated, didn't work. Uh, so we iterated to this phone-based system, a phone reading a colometric test. 
Uh, we started going down the regulatory path. That was expensive. Somebody said, what about diabetic dogs? And my question was, dogs get diabetes, really? So I went and see a bunch of vets, said, hey, this is what we're doing. Would this make sense? I said, not only can we test blood, which is what our original test was, but you know what? Colometric tests, we could test urine or saliva or whatever. And one of the vets said, you could tell me what a dog's blood glucose is from their saliva? And um, so Delphine Dean said, yeah, we can do that. Now I've learned that, you know, two years and a million dollars later, we're pretty close to doing that. <laughs> um, everything costs more and takes longer. Everything <laughs> is harder, takes longer, and costs more than you think. So, But that's a great example of we started in one place, and our ultimate goal is to get back to a low-cost human, you know, glucose test, and we'll get there. But But how we got there was... Very unpredictable. Nobody could have sat down at the beginning and said, this is going to the path you're going to go down. So uh, we're very close to having the first sale. We're excited about that. We have a very strong technical team of people. Um, we have some great regulatory people. So we've already started the regulatory process for the human side of this. Um, we've got some great capital partners um, who've involved with us. We, you know, we're trying to raise some more money right now. Um, and, you know, it isn't any more easy now than it was a couple of years ago, really. Right. And so, I mean, for you, that brings you up to, you would like to raise another million on top. Yeah, we're back yeah. to calling on 135 people. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Some of them are going to say no, but you just need, how many is it to say yes? Or just enough. Just enough, yeah. Right. Yeah, it depends on how big a check they're willing to write. We, we just need one person is what we need. <laughs> right. Yeah, mm -hmm. if it's the right person. Well, mm. I mean, it looks like you're pretty far along. I mean, I, you know, obviously if folks just listening can't see, but it looks like we're looking at packaging even here. So you're pretty far along. Oh, we're ready to pull the trigger. I mean, we're doing our final tests with pet owners, testing their dogs and their homes. The product itself works. Um, where we are is usability. You know, it, it's a pet owner being able to take one of our tabs and, and swab their, you know, dog's jowl and get the right amount of saliva on it and um, put it on the carton and take a picture and, and get the right number. So, you know, in the lab work with people who are very proficient at it, it's spot on every time, you know, having somebody in their home do it consistently. You know, it's we're putting together an instruction video of how to do this. We've got, you know, some other information to kind of coach them along. But that's a part of this, isn't it? Right? I mean, we, we knew we knew eight weeks ago that technically it worked. And so what we did was we set up a field test with some some pet owners in their home with their dog. And so we've learned a lot in the last two weeks about the kinds of challenges they face. Right. And it's not Technical challenges, it's usability challenges. And so, you know. I like uh, this, you know, because no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. In this case, it's a dog. And, you know, the, and the neat thing is the dog is going to lie to you and say, I think it worked. You know, either it did or it didn't, right? I mean, he's just, you're just going to do your thing. Oh, I don't know about that. We, we have a <clears throat> um, dog that we've tested a lot, a little dog named Emma. And we had an accessible diagnostics board meeting back in January, and Emma came to the board meeting, and um, they pulled out a lance. She poked the dog in the lip to draw a drop of blood, and they pulled out the lamps to lance Emma, and the dog saw that coming, and, and our chief technology officer and our R&D engineer are both women, and there's these two women in this little bitty dachshund. It's like six inches long, and they're having to hold this dachshund down, you know, to poke it in the lip. And uh, so then they pull out, you know, the vet tab, and kind of swab its saliva. The dog knew what was coming. It just kind of lays back and smiles and lets them swab the inside of its lip. And I said, okay, that dog gets an Oscar. 
That's right. right. Because she did a great job of illustrating both the problem and the solution. I hope you filmed that. Right. We did film it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was it was great. But I mean, um, the good thing about this is I think the value proposition is that clear. You know, I mean, we don't have any of all the things I've ever done. You know, I don't know I've ever had something where people are calling me. Customers are calling me on the phone saying, where are you? You told me I was going to have this six months ago. Well, you people don't know what you're doing. You can't get this on the market. I mean, my dog needs this. And I'm saying, okay, that's a good problem to have, right? No, that's an excellent problem, right? Yeah. I mean, if, as Seth Godin always says, if you disappear, would your customers miss you? Or in this case, they're anticipating you to the point that they want you to be there. This yeah. is a high-quality problem. That's exactly right. And I love the part of the story where you raised money and then you've iterated your company. But your investors aren't screaming because you've done a good job of keeping them in the loop and bringing them along. Yeah, there's a wonderful word that the entrepreneurial community has adopted called pivot. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, first 35 years of my career, I thought I was failing. No, 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 I'm not <laughs> failing. I'm just pivoting. Yeah. Right? It, it makes you feel a whole lot better. Yeah. Right? That takes the sting out of it entirely. Yeah. All right, John, I, I'm a, I don't think people appreciate what an asset and a resource you are inside the Tech After Five community. Um, but you've got a thing you're trying to get done as well. How can someone help John Warner today? Well, I think the biggest thing that folks listening to this can probably do is just, uh, you know, contribute to growing the entrepreneurial community in Greenville and South Carolina. Uh, you know, you and I have been doing this a long time, and we've always had this attitude that, you know, you need to try to focus on things that are in your enlightened self-interest to do, right? And the, and the enlightened piece means we're building a community. You know, not everything's going to be a quid pro quo. Not, you know, you don't get paid for everything you do. Now, the self-interest piece is you got to get enough out of this, right, to sustain your involvement. Because if it's all volunteer, if it's all philanthropic, right, eventually you're going to you're going to burn out. So, so there has to be that balance where you find those things where you're trying to make the world a better place. And quite frankly, that just, at least for me, that's, you know, that's what makes life worth living. Uh, you know, you leave a legacy, but at the same time, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I've spent a long time growing an entrepreneurial community. Hopefully here I can raise a million bucks out of it. That's right. You know, and again, I need to. by the way, just again, yeah, again, <laughs> again. So, uh, you know, uh, cause I mean, right now for what I'm doing, you know, that's what it is. I mean, if, if, if we don't have the capital to make payroll next week, it doesn't really matter what right. else that's have we've job. done the last 35 years. Right. Well, great. Uh, we can find you, of course, on LinkedIn, and you are at Swamp Fox on Twitter if someone's trying to find you there. That is absolutely true. All right. John, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. All right, I'm here with my friend Scott Pfeiffer, and we just had a great conversation with John Warner. I, you know, we started this thing out, Scott, and I said that this, we made a pretty bold statement. I said, we were going to tell the audience how to raise a million bucks. I think we had the right guy. I think he delivered. Uh, what do you think, Tech After Five listeners, should be taken away from the show, Scott? Well, Phil, I thought John did a great job, and there was a lot of really good information in that segment. But if I had to narrow it down, I'd say, that there were three big takeaways for me. First, John told us that you have to build your network before you try to raise money. John did that very intentionally. He talked about having a spreadsheet that had who he knew and the people that they knew. And he's really saying that you're going to raise your money from sort of that group, the people you know and the people that they know. So being intentional about building that network before you ever go out, that's the first big takeaway. Second, and this one's really important, 
is he talked about the power of persistence. I love how he shared that he got over a hundred no's to get to enough yeses to raise that first million. And even when he's trying to raise money now, he's still getting a bunch of no's on his way to getting those yeses. And he said the people that fail are often the ones who just give up. They're not willing to put in the work to get the hundred no's. And the third thing was the good communication and care and feeding of your investors after you've raised the funds. Not only does that help keep you safe as you pivot to new directions, you know, try to pivot towards success as you go on, uh, but also when you go to raise that next million dollars, it's the people that have already given you money and had a good experience and the people that they recommend that are going to be your source of income. Yeah, I think those are all great points. And, you know, and they're on that last bit that you're talking about. I mean, that's just a trust building exercise, right? I mean, I bring them into the fold. We've raised, you know, they've given us some money. We want to show that we're good stewards. We're going to tell them where we are and what we're doing with it. Yeah, I mean, he said if if uh, when you when you finally fail, he said there's three outcomes. You're either going to fail and everybody's going to lose their money and be mad. You're going to be wildly successful and everybody's going to make a ton of money or you're going to kind of be in the middle. Um. But when you're doing that first one, you failed, you raised the money, you've given it your best, and it just didn't work. He said, if the first time they find out that you're in trouble is when you shut the doors, you're in real trouble. Yeah, I, I, I thought he was spot on with that. And I, I also couldn't agree with you more on that second point. You know, when you talk about persistence, and I don't remember his exact numbers, but let's say, I think he said it was something like he went to 123 people. He got over 100 no's. I think there were only eight yeses. But the eight yeses is what he needed. But being able to push through that, I just don't think people realize that even when you've got a great company, a great idea, a great team, you might have to ask a lot of people to get there. And you've got to be willing for people. It's just not going to work for them. They're going to say no, and you have to move on. Yeah, he did say that. And I thought that was a really good point. And I also like how he said, you don't need to spend a lot of time coming up with this super complicated structure or super complicated pricing that the people you talk to, especially as you get those early no's, they'll tell you what the structure needs to look like. They'll tell you where the pricing needs to be. And you can sort of iterate it along until you get to people that'll tell you yes. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, he doesn't go out there with a, this is how it is, no matter what. He comes out with a general idea and sort of iterates along to get to the deal that can close. Right. Yeah. I thought it was great all along. Scott, I appreciate you helping me out and uh, us being able to go through this together. Thanks, Phil. It was a great conversation. John's a super smart guy, and I hope this helps people. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. We sure do enjoy putting these things together for you. If you can help us by sharing this episode, if you think this is fun, useful, amazing, put it out to your friends. Let them know that you're listening. Get them involved in it as well. We'd love to have them listen to the show. We'd love to have them and you come to see us at our live events. Hey, by the way, if we're not in a city that you need us to be, how about you think about becoming a host of Tech After Five in your city? Or are you connecting us with someone who would like to be a host of Tech After Five in some other city? We are working on a program right this very moment to help other people run a Tech After Five of their own. And you can find out more about that on the website as well. 
If you've got uh, feedback or questions, something you'd like to ask us about personal networking, about raising money, about being advancing your uh, tech career, then uh, be sure to use the uh, feedback and questions part of the Anchor FM app. So uh, leave us some voicemail and we will get back. We we're going to put all those together and uh, have an upcoming show where we answer your questions. Thanks a lot for listening to the Tech After Five podcast. Share us if you can. Thanks a lot. Bye now.